RX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. I believe that fact can be a great starting point for fiction. This is the German filmmaker Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. You know, the word in German for fiction is actually the same word that is used for poetry and for density. So it's Dichtung. And it's, I think that's a beautiful way of looking at fiction. It's made of the same stuff as reality. It's just been compressed in this extreme way. It's just much more dense. There's more truth per cubic inch of fiction than there is in a cubic inch of facts. Donnersmark is best known for his excellent first feature, The Lives of Others which was about an East German spy and the East German playwright he surveils in the 1980s. It won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film in 2007. His new movie is Never Look Away, which is a fictionalized life of one of the great living painters, Gerhard Richter. Richter is alive in his 80s, and he's just this side of reclusive, so it was remarkable that he spent days being interviewed by Donner's Mark before the film and gave him permission to use or alter the details and secrets of his real life as well. Never Look Away follows a young artist called Kurt from his childhood under Nazism, like Richter, youth in communist East Germany, like Richter, his defection in the early 60s to the West, like Richter, where he promptly has his creative breakthrough, as Richter did. The character's first great pieces look very much like early Richter masterpieces. Photorealist paintings based on snapshots, blurred and slightly out of focus, like foggy, inscrutable memories. This is really the only way. Really? Zweifelst du meine Fachkenntnisse an? Würde ich mir so etwas zumuten? Und meiner Tochter, wenn es nicht sein müsste? The movie was nominated for two Oscars, and I liked it a lot. I met for a conversation with Donner's Mark in Los Angeles, where he's lived with his family for the past dozen years. So the New York Times critic A.O. Scott wrote in his review of Never Look Away that you, quote, have an old-fashioned Hollywood showman sensibility. <laughs> Do you agree with that? I, I'm not exactly sure what it means, but, you know, I definitely want to uh, tell the story in the most entertaining way imaginable. I think there's never an excuse for boring the audience. You know, it's as unacceptable as a filmmaker to bore someone as it is a person to smell bad or something like that. You know, I mean, it's just completely unacceptable. So it's certainly my duty as a director to try and make it fun. Um, you came to this, as I understand it, by reading a biography of Gerhard Richter um, that had one big fact in it that had not been previously reported that made you think, hmm, what if, mm -hmm. right? Yes, yes. And no, what is that? So I hadn't really known that much about Gerhard Licht. I knew that he'd created a beautiful painting of a very attractive young woman holding a little baby in her arms based on a black and white photograph, painted very realistically, painted blurry in a kind of sfumato technique, and that he'd later revealed that this was a photograph of his mother's youngest sister, his aunt, holding him as a little baby, and that shortly after this picture had been taken, she had been murdered by the Nazis because she developed schizophrenia. So I'd been fascinated by that because I'd always thought, 
in what frame of mind must he have been in to paint this? In a way, it's one of those examples of someone taking a very traumatic event from their life and turning it into something so beautiful that still seems meaningful and deep. And I was interested by that painting. And in the 2000s, there was a German journalist who wrote a biography of Gerd Richter where he found out that Richter was already in his 70s at this point, that the woman that Gerd Richter ended up marrying, her father had been a high-ranking SS doctor in charge of large parts of the eugenics program that the Nazis had. And he hadn't known that. But if you look at his paintings and the paintings that he made of this father-in-law, you think on some level he must have known. And I thought this was an interesting starting point for a story. And did you feel as you invented this story around this new fact and other facts of Richter's life, did you feel as though, oh, I have puzzled out these secrets or I'm inventing this story? Was it both? Yeah, there was a little bit of both. Some things to me felt like I'd done really good detective work, but other things I I knew I was fictionalizing in a substantial way and in a way was was writing it more like it should have been. Uh, and but, but, But that's what made it so interesting to me to say, you know, now that I've developed this story, I want to go and talk to Richter and just throw this fiction at him and just get a sense from his reaction where I'm closer to fact, where I'm closer to fiction, um, and just what he thinks of that, and, and maybe get some more detailed information, some little pieces of fact that I can put into this mosaic. And luckily, he was very open to that, and we spent many weeks together, and he told me everything from his life and was intrigued by this approach. Um, and that was four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you went to Dresden where he spent his uh, young adulthood. Yes. I mean, it was extraordinary. I mean, were you surprised? That, Whoa, why is this guy letting me so yes. far in? I, I absolutely was surprised. I mean, I, I couldn't. Sometimes I came back in the evening and I couldn't believe it. I said almost anything that's been written about Richter would have to be scrapped after all this information that he gave me. But then I thought, okay, probably the very reason that he gave it to me is because he knew that I wouldn't use it in this very direct way, but that I was going to create my own densified version of his life and not not exactly his life, that it was not a biopic. Um, you made it some kind of deal with Richter not to say publicly – based on your many, many, many hours of interviews, what is true and what is not true in this film? Yeah, I mean, except where it's already a matter of public record. I mean, a lot of the things we talked about are also in other books. And I said to him, I will not reveal the things that I got only from you that are not already a matter of public record if you will not say where I invented stuff, you know? <laughs> so it was, a, it was a pretty good agreement, I thought. Um so you make the movie, you finish the movie. Were you still in touch with Richter as you were making it and finishing yes, it? Yes, yeah. Partly because, you know, I knew how he turned on his biographers. I thought, you know what, although they'd said that's going to happen to you too, I said, <laughs> that's not going to happen to me because I'll keep him informed every step of the way. And you read him the screenplay? I, uh, you know, when I was done with the screenplay, I went to Cologne with my daughter, actually, because I also wanted her to experience him once she was, I think, 13 or so at the time. And we spent a day there reading the whole screenplay to him word for word. And then, you know, I showed him the trailer and... When I was done with the whole film, I said, okay, before I want to show it to anyone else, I'd like for you to see it um, just so you can see, you know, that 
it's truly not a biopic of you, you know, but there are a lot of elements where even I chose some locations because I knew they had a special significance to you. No one will ever know except you. You know, there were a lot of little love letters hidden in the in the film. But he said, look, I don't I don't feel up to it. I can't do it. And I was a little disappointed because I would have liked for him to see it. But I can understand it in a way because if, if I if I honestly put myself in that position, you know, I could see that you know, in a way if it's where it's very close to the actual trauma that he lived through that might be very painful to see on screen where it's a big departure from my life that would also be a little bit difficult for me to see so you know in a way maybe the film is for for everyone except for him but the takeaway publicly is oh he's disavowed it see that's i mean he hasn't seen it that's the problem so he he's do are you do you believe him Oh, of course. I mean, I know that because the the one place you know he couldn't go to an art theater somewhere, you know, where and and not be recognized. So I think that would be kind of tough. So uh, he's definitely not. Maybe his it. wife snuck in and saw it and said, yes, eh, "This think, doesn't do you well." Yes, that I think happened for sure. And I mean, she was, you know, she she was against the project from the from the get go because this is a you know talks a lot and uses a lot of the information from the his love story with his first wife and. I think the current wife, who's also been with him now for 25 years or so, probably feels, you know, why would we want the world to focus on that and see that as, as an important part of his, his birth as an artist? Uh, human frailty takes its toll. <laughs> so even though you have this iffy feeling, oh, do I want to make a biopic? No, I want it to be fictionalized. If he were entirely fictional, would it be as interesting? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Right? Could be. You know, a film that does a similar tightrope walk in that way is, I think, Citizen Kane, a film that I love very much. You used to write an awful lot about the working man. Oh, go on home. turning into something called organized labor. You're not going to like that one little bit when you find out it means that your working man expects something as his right, not as your gift, Charlie. And yes, it's true. It does make it more interesting that we know that Charles Foster Kane is based on William Randolph Hearst and that we see the parallels. But at the same time, I can really tell you if the film were called Citizen Hearst, I would not be all that interested. It's the fact that it's called something completely different, that I know that there are all these liberties in there that Orson Welles takes. That's what makes it interesting to me. I agree entirely. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, there is this Hearst figure, so we know this isn't just made up. There was really a guy like this. And, And you know what? I think that kind of goes towards what we were talking about earlier. I think that is why it is so thrilling to use true elements, because you know that if you just correct them a little bit, and if you look at them the right way, life still writes the greatest stories. Like the director Paul Thomas Anderson did in his film The Master mm-hmm. uh, yes, about L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology. Yes, I thought it was very interesting. I actually looked at how Anderson promoted that movie, always insisting that it was a completely fictional character. But yes, of course, it was really thrilling to watch because you knew something like that had really existed. But mm-hmm. you know what? I think you're coming very close to helping me understand why factual elements uh, make a movie that much more interesting to me. It's because you're not telling a story of some superhero who can run faster than any object uh, could ever be transported. You know, it's just you are based in reality. So what's an example of, of something in this movie that you completely made up? For example, just to show you where 
fact is just too messy. Um, and I think fiction is truer. He was indoctrinated for sure with Nazi ideology as a kid. And I thought, how do I tell that kind of indoctrination? And there was this big show, Degenerate Art. He didn't see it, but he could have. You know, his aunt might have taken him to that. And, and you actually filmed that as a significant scene in, in your film. Little five-year-old Gerhard Richter, Kurt, goes with his beloved aunt to see this famous Nazi degenerate art show in 1937. Here is their tour guide. You know, for me, it was an interesting way of going into the movie with the, one of the craziest things that was ever done in art history, namely this degenerate art show where the Nazis pulled out of all the museums in all the public collections the art that they considered degenerate and just showed it to make fun of it. And it was a very successful exhibit. Over two million people came to see it. And yes, many were just you know, stupid people uh, laughing at, oh, oh my goodness, people paid 5,000 marks for this Picasso, you know, yeah. blue horse or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, but there, were, there was also a part of the viewership that came because they knew this was the last opportunity that they would have to see truly great and free art. Well, it's interesting. As you say, the blurriness between what seems fictional or what seems true. Of course, that's true, that degenerate art show. Seeing it in your film... It looks like, nah, come on, that didn't happen with Picasso and this. But it did, of course. Oh, no, no. All those, all those paintings were really there. All those artists were really there. It, it, it's really one of the nuttiest things. And actually, after that show, the Nazis didn't know what to do with these paintings, and they organized an impromptu auction in Switzerland and sold a few of the paintings, but it hadn't been very well advertised and there wasn't a lot of money to go around at that time. The rest they just destroyed. So a lot of these great paintings had been destroyed. We only had little black and white photographs of them. And we worked with the archives of these painters to try and reconstruct them exactly as they were. And now I find myself in a very uh, tricky position because my agreement with the German Collecting Society that represents all these artists and their heirs is that... You know, after we're through with the um, movie and with presenting it and all that, I have to destroy all those paintings. And, you know, I understand why, because, of course, in 50 years' time, someone will see that painting and think, oh, here's that great lost painting. The Nazis didn't burn it after all. And suddenly you have a forgery on the market and, uh, and they look completely real. I mean, there's no, there, it would be very, very hard to tell that these were not real. But I haven't yet been able to find it in me to actually you know, put them in a container and throw a match in there because they're these beautiful, amazing paintings. Well, and the fact that you are required in 2019 <laughs> to do what the Nazis did to the real thing is, again, yeah. no, no, it, you can't make it up. Absolutely. You know, and I thought, OK, let's turn it into some kind of bizarre yes. um, happening, you know, and maybe do it like in a public square and have one of our actors in character, you know, like the Nazi guide uh, throw the match and, and then we'll film it. And But then then my wife said, are you crazy? People would just see that footage and think, OK, so, true. you know, we, this is where we are again. We're burning art. That's true. Uh, so I, I think we're just going to have to do it, uh, you know, secretly, but still documented and send that uh, send the footage to uh, to the collecting society. Wow. Florian Donner's Mark. This has been a, a great pleasure and, and privilege. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Kurt. I enjoyed speaking with you. Never Look Away is in theaters now. 
And opening in April in New York City at The Shed is a collaborative show created by Gerhard Richter, along with the composers Steve Reich and Arvo Perrin. Coming up, how performers like John Tesh became unlikely musical stars of the 1990s. That is next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Back in the 1990s, I wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times where I tried to make sense and make fun of a phenomenon that was sweeping the planet. Yanni. This New Age composer and performer was a huge deal at the time, performing concerts at the Taj Mahal and the Forbidden City. And 25 years ago this month, March 1994, he released his Live at the Acropolis album, which sold more than 4 million copies. This baffled me. In my Times essay, I proposed facetiously that Yanni's success must be the product of some powerful global conspiracy. Because this mustachioed young Yanni guy and his music were so completely (laughs) bland and bleh. Others agreed. There's one guy, the worst guy in the music, the Yanni man. You know Yanni, right? (laughs) First of all, anyone who looks like a magician and doesn't do magic, I don't like. Oh no, this is Yanni. (laughs) This guy is the biggest butthole I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, yeah. So how did it happen? How did somebody who made what sounded pretty much like Muzak, how at that moment of Nirvana and A Tribe Called Quest, did he emerge as this superstar? Studio 360's Evan Chung has the answers. The 1994 TV special of Yanni's concert at the Acropolis has all the trappings of a musician doing a victory lap after really hitting the big time. There he was, set against the backdrop of the Parthenon, backed by no less than the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, tossing back his dark flowing locks as he tapped at his synthesizers, while an enormous crowd cheered him on. But if you thought that this was Yanni's reward for being world famous, you'd have it backwards. Yanni wasn't on TV because he was a star. He was a star because he was on TV. Yanni was a niche player. He was big in his area, but that's relative. George Varis produced and directed the Live at the Acropolis special and worked with Yanni for years. He wasn't considered a big player in the overall music field. Yanni's field was the world of instrumental electronic new age music. He had been releasing albums for a small New Age label since the mid-80s, and they got respectable sales within that market. But the general public dismissed all that stuff as music for hot stone massages or being put on hold. He was being buttonholed as a New Age artist, and there was no superstar in that genre. If Yanni was well-known for anything, it was for being the new boyfriend of a celebrity. So I opened the front door. Opened the door. I took one look at him. I I lost my heart. This entire 1990 Oprah episode is actually devoted to Dynasty actress Linda Evans and her meet-cute with Yanni. It was as if he was made just for my eyes. I mean, there isn't a thing about him that I don't love. (laughs) The exposure was nice, 
But Yanni wanted to be more than talk show fodder. The frustration was he was hitting like a glass ceiling. But we believed in the music. We saw that it could be used in a lot of other areas than just in elevators. And that was the challenge we had to get it out there and let the public decide. But what options did Yanni have? His music wasn't really radio friendly. And MTV wasn't exactly making a lot of room for instrumental New Age composers. And then... Jose Carreras, Placido Domingo, and Luciano Pavarotti performed their first concert together in 1990 as part of the World Cup in Italy. But the three tenors made their biggest mark during another major week-long event. The March PBS Pledge Drive. Now is your chance to do your part. Not we for ask us. That you call in and pledge your support. To it is very important to get all the telephones in the studio busy. A quick refresher on what the deal with PBS Pledge Drives is. They started in the early 70s. PBS stations needed money, and they couldn't make it the normal TV way. Because we couldn't air commercials. <laughs> commercials, fun commercial television. We were not allowed to do that. Pat Callahan is director of membership at Arizona Public Media. She's been fundraising for PBS stations since before they really figured out the whole pledge drive thing. In the old days, we'd just put a slide up after Masterpiece Theater and then sit there for five or ten minutes while the announcer would be making a pitch over the slide. Soon enough, they adopted the familiar pledge drive format. The point was to get donations from people watching at home, which is to say... From viewers like you. During a pledge drive, stations block off a week or two where they periodically interrupt their programming to make direct appeals to their viewers. You just finished watching a marvelous program. Why wouldn't you stand up, call the number on your screen, and then become a member? The problem is, unlike most public radio shows, normal PBS shows don't actually work that well for raising money, in part because they're hard to chop up for pledge breaks. Look at Frontline. You can't interrupt that. Look at Nova. You can't interrupt that. There's a long story arc there. You can't slice and dice it. But pledge shows, successful pledge shows, have little story arcs so that they build for 15 or 20 minutes and then you go to a break. 15 to 20 minutes, then you go to a break. That structure is perfect, though, for concert films. So PBS stations often fill their pledge drives with one-off musical specials, even if they're completely unrelated to their usual programming. When you build a music pledge show, you come out on a high. I mean, I can remember big band specials where people would get up and dance in their own homes, they were telling us. The Three Tenors concert special wasn't made for PBS. ABC had actually aired it the year before. It just got repackaged for the March 91 pledge drive, where it defied all expectations. Never saw anything like it. It was just amazing to be on the studio floor and watch those phones just keep ringing and ringing and ringing. The three tenors concert promises to be one of the most popular events the public television has to We're going to send you the VHS copy of the program. And you can have that for your gift of $180. We made a ton of money. We made a ton of money on that. And then it just spilled over and spilled out. Out into the mainstream. The three tenors became household names. Yanni and his producer, George Veris, they saw what was happening. They saw the PBS pledge drive as a platform. Or better yet, they saw it as a catapult, 
a catapult that they could really launch Yanni's career from. We just knew that if we could get on public television, once you saw it, you would get absorbed by it and come back for more. We had nowhere else to go. We weren't with a big record company. We weren't with a big management team. We were the unknown guys in the block. Nobody believed in us. Nobody. So Yanni set out to prove everybody wrong by making his own concert special with George Barris as director. Yanni and Linda Evans personally footed much of the bill, which was somewhere around $2 million, all with the specific purpose of licensing it to PBS pledge drives, even though they had no idea if it was actually going to get serious airtime. The question was how much and how many stations. That was the big risk. We didn't have any guarantee on that. I mean, that, that definitely was the big risk. If you're going to take a gamble, you might as well go all in. They concocted an audacious spectacle. We needed to create something that would make what the bigness of his music was appropriate to the imagery on television. They hired the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra to lend an unexpected majesty to Yanni's keyboard compositions. And they booked an epic outdoor venue. The Acropolis, the apogee of all that is good and noble in modern man. And to be clear, Yanni was not already going to be performing at a second century Athenian theater. This was not a big in Japan type situation. In fact, he'd grown up in Greece, but he had never played in Greece in his career. He wasn't a superstar there. He wasn't a superstar, period. But he played one on TV, dressed head to toe in all white, snapping his fingers and punching the air to the music. It was like doing an Olympic opening ceremony. George Veris' background as a director was in sports, and that's the approach he took to the concert. First of all, you need the spectacular scene set wide shot. We lit the Parthenon. We lit the audience, not in white, but in violet, rosé, pastel coloring. It was like painting a picture. There weren't even that many people at the concert, really. But George Veris made it all seem bigger with wide-angle lenses and skillful camera work. What I call power shots. Tight shots on the hands of the celloists. Pan up to the face of the celloists. Let's find the faces that emote emotion. There's an incredible overhead shot from a high-angle jib that comes down to the keyboards in a rush to the crescendo of the music. And now you're getting finally to Yanni. Yanni at the Acropolis, I'll never forget that. I had never heard music like that. And the beauty of the production itself, I mean, it was glorious. The camera loves some people, and, you know, they, they loved Yanni. After PBS stations saw the finished product, they started airing it during their March 1994 pledge drive. And over the course of the drive, it just gathered more and more momentum. Stations scheduled it again and again and again, sometimes back to back in a single night. It just kept raking in money. I mean, you had to just get up from your couch or your chair and go over to the phone. It was fascinating, fabulous. Yanni's good looks didn't hurt either, considering the target demo of PBS Pledge Drives. 55-year-old women had never seen anything like this. I think I may have been 55. No, I'm... <laughs> the CD version of the concert was released at the same time. Within three weeks of the start of the Pledge Drive, it shot to number five on the Billboard album charts. For an instrumental New Age live album, it was unheard of. 
Yanni had never come close to that before. Now even his back catalog started to chart. You look at Yanni's tour numbers, they were just off the charts. I mean, he was worldwide. I don't believe without the PBS special, it would have happened. Absolutely not. Yanni's $2 million bet paid off. The three tenors might have seemed like kind of a fluke, but Yanni's meteoric rise showed that a PBS pledge drive, of all things, could launch a career. And one person who took notice was another struggling New Age composer. You could see what PBS was doing and that it was really the, the Discovery Channel. Three tenors and Yanni, right? Nobody knew who these guys were. People actually did know who John Tesh was, but it wasn't for his music. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Entertainment Tonight. I'm John Tesh. Home Alone made Macaulay Culkin the hottest child star today. Now the Million Dollar Kid is starring in a new movie. It's called My Girl. I was at Entertainment Tonight, and I had been hosting for uh, eight years. I was at that moment, and had been for the last five or six years, trying to get a record deal, and I could not get uh, record companies interested in me. John Tesh did manage to get some of his compositions used in sports broadcasts. This is the NBA on NBC. But to the public, he was eternally the E.T. guy. Yeah, I was playing in front of about 50 people at a time, basically, back then. In fact, I remember getting hired, my band and I, like four of us, there was a special event at Nordstrom's in the shoe section. We played uh, background music, but they had to keep telling us to turn it down. I, you know, I, I realized that if I was going to have a real full-time music career, that it was going to have to be some, you know, some big event. What I needed was something like a PBS special to, to make a whole bunch of loud noise. But even after Yanni's Acropolis success, John Tesh had to convince PBS. You know, I mean, they joked like, we didn't know you were a musician. Are you going to read the celebrity birthdays with the orchestra? You know, Celebrating a birthday this Thursday, July the 28th. Actress Elizabeth Berkeley is 22. Which I, think, which I didn't think was very funny at the time. So they basically said, well, we'll take a look at it. If you record it, but we can't guarantee that we'll put it on the air. So with no guarantee that anybody would ever see it, John Tesh ponied up his own money for a pledge drive special. And we basically took our savings and ended up having to take what amounted to a, you know, a second on our house and invested in this thing. And we reached about 1.2 million by the time we were, you know, we were done, which was ridiculous. He followed Yanni's fake it till you make it formula pretty closely. Instead of the Acropolis as a backdrop, he chose the ancient sandstone monoliths of the Red Rocks Amphitheater in Colorado. And how do you go from annoying the Nordstrom shoe department to packing the seats at Red Rocks? You give away the tickets. We paid a, uh, a company to give away the tickets, and I was shocked that 12,000 people showed up. I don't know if you folks know it, but each and every one of you are at this moment sitting right smack dab in the middle of my biggest dream, being here doing this. And John Tesh made sure they got their non-money's worth by putting on a spectacle. Maybe, uh, you know, some pyro would work here. Or let's put Charlie, the violin player, up on this precarious rock. Or let's have a hydraulic shoot the guitar player up in the air. He even had Olympic gymnasts Nadia Komenich and Bart Connor on stage doing routines to the music. I just realized that I needed to pull out every stop I had for this special because I just didn't have any guarantee that they were going to take it. One programmer in Maryland did agree to test it out in the March 1995 pledge drive. She said, well, I've got a slot at midnight on Sunday night. <laughs> and, they, you know, and her people stayed up and pledged it. 
and it, it, it was like doing better than three tenors. And so they all started faxing each other at PBS. And within a couple of days, it was on the, it was on the March schedule and it was on the March schedule. I mean, it was, it was huge. If you like Yanni in concert, you'll love John Tesh live at Red Rocks. I realized from watching the people who were hosting the pledge drives that it was really an infomercial. The music is lush. The setting is gorgeous. If you have a chance to have somebody evangelize about it, it's so much better than just having a song played on the radio. And John, you're generating a lot of excitement for Thanks. public television well, that's, now. that's really why we're here. If we don't make the phones ring, then it's, uh, we might as well go do something else. It's up to you. Yeah, I mean, I've heard them say anywhere between 15 and $20 million, ultimately, that it, that it raised for, for PBS. The Live at Red Rocks special, it changed everything for me. I mean, it was, Red Rocks was that, was that seminal change in my life, for sure. Exactly one year after Live at the Acropolis, John Tesh proved that Yanni's model for achieving stardom could be replicated. And so began the era of the unlikely blockbuster PBS pledge special. And you are watching Riverdance, the show, the phenomenon that has swept the world. I remember when I first heard about that program. I mean, Irish clog dancing. My last name is Callahan. I couldn't believe that they were going to give us this pledge show. And I just blown away. I mean, it was nothing like I used to see at my church. <laughs> and there was Sarah Brightman, Andrea Bocelli, Andre Rayu. Yeah, I guess you'd have to say we were really rolling <laughs> in the 1990s. They were inundated with ideas from people after things like three tenors. Yanni, right, River Dance, and certainly me, right? Because it was like, well, listen, if this guy can do it, I can definitely do this. Only now they weren't all self-funded. Major labels caught on and started putting money behind pledge specials that managed to break new artists like Josh Groban and Charlotte Church. Celtic Woman didn't even exist as a group before. They were assembled by a producer for the purpose of debuting on a pledge drive special. These shows were inescapable. PBS stations get the rights to air a special not just once, but in some cases six, seven, eight times a week. That adds up to a whole lot of potential eyeballs. For about a year and a half, two years, you couldn't get away from it, and people would run it back to back. If you look at the role that pledge plays and how much money it needs to bring in. It was very difficult to not play that show over and over again. It's something that you viewers of public television want to see our programs a second and a third time. The regular heavy core viewers were very upset by this constant, but we brought in a lot of new audiences, I think, that liked our music specials. So, you know, it was a trade-off. Yes, the constant pledge drive airings had succeeded in turning Yanni and John Tesh into unlikely household names. But for a lot of people, those names became shorthand for bad music. So, you name one woman that you broke up with for an actual, real reason. Maureen Rosillo. Because she doesn't hate Yanni is not a real reason. We're going to do that disclaimer about the uh, John Tesh album. You got that? Sure. Not suitable for any living thing. <laughs> That Red Rocks thing is awful. Moving on. I, I think the reason it never got to me and never will 
is that I'm just as surprised as anybody else, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that anything great has ever happened to me. When Triumph the Insult Dog made fun of me, it was like, well, I, I feel like I've been recognized for all this crazy stuff that I've done. Live at Red Rocks. I listened to it last night. I, I haven't had so much fun since the doctor chopped my nad dog. It still seems pretty crazy putting everything you have into a pledge drive special in the hopes that it'll make you a star. And it's probably even crazier today. There are some artists still trying to follow the self-produced Yanni model, right down to the single name and the outdoor Greek venue. Nestled in the mountains of northern Greece, Castoria comes alive with the sounds of Pavlo's Mediterranean guitar music. But crossover success on the magnitude of the Yanni phenomenon, that's probably impossible today. The media landscape is just way more fractured than it was in 1994. And today, aspiring musicians may have better, less risky platforms like YouTube. But Yanni and John Tesh, they didn't have those opportunities at the time. Whatever you think of their music, their strategy was brilliant. They came across an ingenious quasi-DIY way to find an audience. And they were willing to gamble big to achieve their dreams. You know, Conan O'Brien said, if the guy who used to read the celebrity birthdays on Entertainment Tonight is now playing piano and millions of people are coming to see that, then we all need to go to our closet right now and get our clarinets out because anything can happen. And, and it's true. So I, and so I think that I was sort of the poster boy for quit your job and follow your dream. John Tesh will be on tour in America this spring. And, and if you happen to be in Indonesia in July, you can see Yanni perform at the 1,200-year-old Prambanan Temple. The audio from Oprah was courtesy of Harpo Inc. and Studio 360's Evan Chung produced our story. Coming up next... Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and fly right. Nat King Cole at 100. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. This week would have been the 100th birthday of the singer and songwriter and pianist Nat King Cole. Unforgettable, that's what you are. Nat King Cole was one of the most popular jazz pop performers from the 1940s through the 1960s. And in 1956, he made history. Ladies and gentlemen, the National Broadcasting Company presents with pride the incomparable Nat King Cole. The Nat King Cole Show ran on NBC for just over a year, from November 1956 through December 1957. Despite that brief run, it was a hugely important cultural landmark, a, a big network TV show starring an African-American, and the last one of those until the 1960s. A while ago, I spoke with Daniel Mark Epstein, who wrote an excellent biography of Cole. I asked him about how Nat King Cole's groundbreaking TV show came to be and what it meant. Nat had been trying to get a television show since 1953, and although he was the most, um, he was the highest paid nightclub performer in the country and, and fantastically popular, the networks kept refusing him uh, a shot at a network television show. 
And they kept saying, well, we don't have enough money or we can't find a time slot. But the real reason was because uh, the man was black and, uh, and in certain parts of the country, they knew that they would not be able to get sufficient sponsorship. Here's a great blend of great jazz musicians and a fine jazz composition featuring Coleman Hawkins, Roy Eldridge, Stan Getz, and the Oscar Peterson Trio. The little tune is called Stomping at the Savoy. It's really important, I think, to realize the significance uh, of this breakthrough um, in the media for an African-American to get his own television show and to see it in the context of other things that were going on in the 1950s. One, of course, was the, um, was the Brown versus Board of Education uh, Supreme Court decision in the 1950s. Uh, one was the Montgomery bus boycott. And shortly after that, Nat went down to uh, Birmingham to give a concert and he was actually attacked on stage by white supremacists uh, who believed that his music was uh, detrimental to the public morals. This caused such a national scandal that uh, Cole became um, far, far more famous than he had been before. He was invited to sing at the White House. And a lot of people believe that it was this um, uh, Nat King Cole's sudden higher visibility uh, that actually persuaded NBC to give him a chance on the television. Somebody loves me. I wonder who. I wonder who she can be. Who at NBC was his great enthusiast? David Sarnoff, who actually was the um, who was actually the founder of both RCA and um, and NBC. Um, Sarnoff uh, one evening was watching uh, Nat King Cole and Harry Belafonte on on the television, and he was so moved, incredibly moved by the uh, by the brilliance of these two entertainers, that he told the ad salesman at uh, NBC, he said, you've got to go out and get a sponsor for this show or heads will roll. Uh, and even so, uh, they were not able to get a national sponsor. What they started doing is piecing together local sponsors. But that wasn't enough. Uh, and finally, in 1957, Nat was so frustrated by what was going on uh, that when they threatened to change his time slot to, to a worse time, uh, he said he wasn't going to do it. And, and uh, this is the cause of his, um, this occasioned his most famous epigram when he said, Madison Avenue is afraid of the dark. Thank you very much. You know, here's a beautiful song called Two Different Worlds. So with the Boatineers and Mr. Gordon Jenkins, we hope you enjoy this one. Two different worlds we live in. Was this a good show, in addition to being an, a sociologically, socially important show? Oh, it was a spectacular show, and Nat's connections in the entertainment world uh, by the 1950s were extraordinary, and he could have anybody on the show, although they hardly had any, any money, um, Tony Bennett, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, Frankie Lane, all of the big stars wanted to be on Nat King Cole's show um, because it was an important cause. He was the Jackie Robinson of the television world. What he was doing for television uh, was very comparable to what uh, Jackie Robinson had done 10 years earlier in 1947 by becoming the first African-American to play Major League Baseball. I'm shooting high, got my eye on a star in the sky. 
In the African-American communities, everything would stop when Nat King Cole came on the television. It was so important uh, for the community uh, to see him. I mean, he was incredibly sophisticated. Uh, he was charming. He was completely in charge of his, of his show. It was very inspiring for the black community and, and, uh, and also had an extraordinary influence on the white community as well. He got letters, for instance, from he got one wonderful letter that I can remember from a woman who was trying to raise uh, a family of children that were um, of mixed race and how she felt that the Nat King Cole show had made her neighbors um, uh, more comfortable with them as a family. That's the kind of uh, grassroots effect uh, that the show had. Thank you very much. Good evening to you all, and thanks again for being with us. I spoke with Daniel Mark Epstein in 2001. Right now, there's a new musical I saw recently at the Geffen Playhouse in Los Angeles that imagines in a highly stylized, fictionalized way the final moments of the Nat King Cole show. It's called Lights Out, Nat King Cole. Dulay Hill stars as Cole, uncertain and angry as he tries to make sense of his show's cancellation. In the finale, should he keep being Mr. Gracious, beloved by white America, or, as his friend Sammy Davis Jr. suggests, go out with a bang? I've been a fan of Nat King Cole for a very long time. Of course, the Christmas song is one of my favorite songs ever. My grandfather used to play it when I was growing up. Just the strings leading into the song brings you into this fantastical place. And then when Nat King Cole comes in, he starts with his first note of Chestnuts. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. There's something warm about it, something embracing about Jack it. Frost nipping at your nose. And from there, I just fell in love with his voice. The smoothness of it, how melodic his voice is, and how easily he danced upon the notes. Sung by choir, and folks dressed up like Eskimos. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. That part right there, the way he climbs down the steps, there's something so uh, melodic about it and easy. Help to make the season bright. I love a Christmas song. I just love I love that song. And I'm thankful that I get a chance to sing that song in the show, in Lights Up. But it's also daunting every night. It's just the idea of getting ready to sing that song in front of a live audience. Because, I mean, he just, he sang that song so perfectly. I don't think it can be or will ever be sang better than Mr. Cole did. I don't try to mimic Mr. Cole. I try to get his essence. I really try to capture that when I sing his songs. His spirit, the essence of his voice, the essence of his song, the gracefulness in it, the softness in his voice, uh, that cool, calming breeze that his voice is as he dances along the notes, trying to really take that and marry that to my being. And hopefully people, when they see the show, can see that reflected on stage. There was a boy A very strange Enchanted boy I really related to many things. I mean, one, I would say they wanted Mr. Cole just to stay in his lane, really. Just to sing the song and, and be quiet. And I think oftentimes today as artists, we're faced with that same situation. Many times if I post anything political or give my point of view, they're going to tell me just to shut up and stick to acting. It's amazing that he had to go through that years ago and was still going through that today. That's what I relate to with Mr. Cole's story is how people will try to 
make a general statement and make that gospel just so that they can keep doing things the way that they want to do it. Like now, like they'll say, you know, African-Americans don't really sell overseas. That's what they'll try to say, like when it comes to financing movies and things like that. No, that, that doesn't sell over there. Or no, we can't diversify this cast uh, because that doesn't sell. Then again, you have a show like Hamilton that comes along and knocks that out the water. He was using his platform of being in the living room of families across the country every day just so that people could then see his humanity. And not only his humanity, but the humanity of, of many other people who look just like him. You know, that's something I related to with him and I really appreciate about his journey. It's an honor to really have this platform to continue telling Mr. Cole's legacy and also tell a story about who we are today. That's DeLay Hill. The Lights Out, Nat King Cole, is playing at the Geffen Playhouse in L.A. through March 24th. Our story was produced by Zoe Saunders and Tommy Bazarian. Travel my way, take the highway, that's the best. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is Sandra Lopez Monsalve. Our producers are Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Anyone who looks like a magician and doesn't do magic, <laughs> I don't like. Thank you very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. A courtroom is inherently dramatic, and especially criminal. Life and death things are happening there. Marsha Clark on how TV dramas needlessly deviate from courtroom reality. But there's a way to pull that off without going so far out of bounds. The OJ prosecutor turned TV show creator next time on Studio 360.